0: Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker.
1: Happy Monday. Welcome back to another episode of Latitude's In Session podcast. Today we've got a great show in store for you. We've got Brian Rogers from Illinois on the line. Brian is a public land hunter that puts a ton of miles boots in the ground every year. He runs a ton of cameras and he specializes in rut tactics. So he is actually formulating game plans to go after specific bucks during the rut. We talk about that quite a bit in the show. I know that I learned a ton from this podcast. So I hope you guys enjoy it. One last thing before we get into the show, if you need any last minute gear, head over to latitudeoutdoors.com, pick out what you need you can save 20% off your order by using the discount code INSESSION. That's one word, INSESSION. You can find that in the description of this podcast as well. Thank you once again for listening to today's show. Let's get right into it. Today I've got a guest on that I've wanted to have on for a long time. I watched him lay down a couple giant bucks over the last few years. I'm talking about none other than Brian Rogers. Brian, thanks for hopping on the show, man.
2: Man, couldn't be more excited to be here. I just appreciate the invite, brother.
1: Yeah, it's gonna be a good time. I I wanna pick your brain and what you're doing because you are obviously having a ton of success out there in Illinois. So let's dive right into it, man. Just uh, let's give everybody a little background on who you are, what you do, and how you got into hunting.
2: My name's Brian Rogers. I'm 38 family man, got two young daughters. I work a full-time day job as a uh, finance manager for an auto dealer here in town. And I actually used to farm for a long time. And then once my daughter was coming along, decided to uh, switch over and go to something that made a little bit more money and started selling cars and working my way up the ranks. And so now, oh, I've been in sales for about nine years now. It actually kind of correlates with my hunting and helping me um, hunting and also the lessons I learned from sales and hunting kind of both correlate with each other. So it's interesting how kind of everything in life you can uh, reduce back to like hard work and just following the basics and stuff like that. But I started hunting before I can even probably barely remember following my uncles and cousins out squirrel hunting on public rabbit hunting. I was the rabbit dog as a kid, like six or seven. I remember riding in the back of the, the truck while it was snowing and my uncles and cousins were laughing at me and my brother in the, in the uh, bed of the truck. Cause you know, we was out there cold and all that stuff. And so kind of baptism by fire. So I didn't get to uh, actually get a gun and start deer hunting until I was like 12 or 13 and just fell in love with it. And actually like did everything wrong for a very long time because we just didn't have the knowledge that is out there today. Like, you know, we would, me and my uncle would walk across a cornfield on this 40 acres with our buckets clanking in the dark in the morning with flashlights going into our spot, blowing deer out as we got in there, wind blowing straight back into the bedding, all this stuff. So, and I remember sitting for a couple of years before I ever even got a shot at a deer or even had one close enough to get a deer. So for me, that kind of built the fire because it seemed so hard and so elusive for me to actually even see one of these things close enough was amazing. And so when it finally happened, it felt, you know, surreal. So my, my cousin, Pat, actually, he was into the bow hunting aspect. And the only thing we had was public. And uh, at the time I thought that was, you know, not the, not the best option looking back. I wish I knew now what I knew then and could go back before everybody had the information that they have today, but either way, I'm, I'm glad how it all played out. Anyway, around 15 or 16, I started bow hunting public, killed my first doe. The second year I started on opening day on October evening. And then the next year killed my first buck opening morning, October evening. I mean, I've just been ate up with it my whole life. So it has progressed There and actually the first 10 years of my life far as deer hunting from there, though, was filled with just a lot of crazy highs and lows as I learned what was going on in the whitetail world because you know I had the drive, but I didn't necessarily have all the steps in place to do what I do now. And now that everything's come full circle. It just feels like it's what was supposed to happen. So.
1: I love that story. It reminds me a lot of my own upbringing with hunting where, uh, my brother and I were, we used to be the guys that would go walk through the woods and push the deer to my dad and grandpa. Like we'd, you know, they'd be like, Hey, there's a thicket over here. Get on your hands and knees and crawl through this thicket. And we loved it. I mean, we would like bark like dogs and just be <laughs> all kinds of crazy. It was just cool to be involved. You know what I mean? Like when we were younger, when, before I could go out in the woods, I'd watch them go hunting or bring a deer home or we'd go track one with them. And I was like, I just want to do it. I just want to be part of the club. You know what I mean? And then finally we were part of the club and we had to like earn that right through doing all those things that nobody else wanted to do. And so we'd, you know, walk through the brush or we'd do whatever it took. But yeah, it's just, it's really funny, man. I mean, it's very similar story. We started bow hunting about the same, you know, timeframe in our lives. And it was the same exact approach where I was... Driven as could be, like I'd spend, I used to tell my grandparents, be like, Hey, I'll be back at dark. You know, I'd leave in the morning, I'll be back at dark, or when I kill a deer, I'm just gonna stay out there all day and just walk around. And I would do that, and I would just, you know, still hunt. I used to read books when I was a kid on, on like the art of still hunting. And so I grew up right off the bat, just kind of still hunting my way through the woods, trying to figure out about deer. And I was just so far off of killing them, like, there were so many things that I didn't understand. So it's just cool to see that evolution in somebody else that's very similar. I mean, it's a very similar path and it's cool that we get to meet up and talk deer hunting now in our thirties. There's, there's nothing better than that.
2: Funny thing is, is like, and my wife always jokes, she thinks it's like close to uh child abuse, but like my uncle was pretty tough on me. If I wasn't up at six 30 or six, when he was there to get me, he would take a giant pan of cold water and throw it all over me in the bed. You were up then, right? Before he would take us out, he would say, listen, I don't take crybabies hunting. So if you go out here and you cry, you'll never go hunting with me again. Right. And my mom didn't know how to dress us for rabbit hunting. So I would be like the kid from the Christmas story We you know, like fully just decked out wrong boots, everything. And man, did I want to cry so bad, but I didn't, you know, cause I knew I'd never get to go hunting again. So just little stuff like that, that I still draw on to this day, you know, like when things are getting tough in the woods. So, or if I have to get up, you know what I mean? It's just like those things that kind of shape who you are and help to kind of mold your hunting too. So.
1: So let's jump into this thing. I'm excited to get in some tactics with you. Uh, before we do that, I want to cover one more thing. a little surprise thing, but I just want to talk about that buck that you killed last year a little bit. That was an unbelievable deer. And I'd like to go into, you know, how you found him a little bit of your strategy behind that. And then ultimately how you ended up catching up with that deer.
2: See, the problem is, is this is a rabbit hole that we could go back to when I was 18, when I originally got into this area. But I could take it back to like 2016, 2017, when I did an observation sit in this elevated CRP field. And I did it along a tree line where private met public. And I wanted to see how they were entering and using the private as well as if they were using the public. Because what happens is... You get pressure on certain parts of the public, and even though it seems like it's going to be a good spot, maybe those deer aren't using that because they're just used to getting shot at right there. So I really wanted to get an idea for how they use the area. And that day set the stage for a couple of different kills of mine and a couple of different encounters over the next few years. I saw a giant, actually, probably Boone and Crockett deer come out of one draw and go on to the private. And then I had two, probably two and three year olds come off of the point where I eventually ended up shooting the big one and they worked a scrape right there. So I ended up, of course, my brain wanted to go to where that booner came out of and then ended up making it full circle back to that scrape. Because the interesting part is that the scrape is not like one of those pronounced big giant scrapes that you see. Over the years, I've learned that those tend to be some of your better ones because the bucks might not be going crazy by it, but every deer in the woods hit goes by that that scrape. And if you know what to look for and you see just these little clues, like, you know, like the little pieces of certain trees broken and how they look like they're historically broken and not just like this was just a chance thing, but it's more than one. um, And you see a couple years worth of them breaking and stuff like that. Like usually, and if it's in the right spot for what makes sense for a community scrape, and you see that oftentimes those can be way more fire than your big giant hub scrapes, like you always talk about. I mean, they're good for inventory, but a lot of times Those get so much attention that deer don't come to them during daylight hours, I find
1: anyway. I agree with you. I think that the big, giant community scrapes get a ton of activity. If there's any pressure introduced in that area, I feel like it's an area that the biggest buck just typically, in my experience, doesn't want to show up at. Let's just take a little bit more of a deep dive into that scrape that you're talking about, that one that's very hard to see. Is the ground worked up like a traditional scrape as well, or is it just like licking branches that are kind of broken off and twisted up?
2: Sometimes the the ground will get worked. It's not like a car hood. You wouldn't pick it out of a lineup compared to any other scrape. And that's usually during late October when they're really you know, fired up, and there's other scrapes and other rubs in the area. To me, it always comes back more to just location. And then you see, like I said, you see evidence of the branches being broken and not just like by chance one maybe was worked over, but like you can see a couple years worth of use on this thing. If you were just walking by it and didn't know what you were looking at, if I hadn't have seen those deer come out and work it, I might have never even gave it a second look. When I did go up and look at it, it made a lot of sense. The ground is flat, you know, like you can tell that a lot of deer come by there, stand there and use it, but maybe don't work the ground up as much.
1: Is there a typical type of tree you're finding that on?
2: Not necessarily. It just tends to be more younger growth, obviously. not. It's not like some hanging classic oak branch that's hanging down over the edge. Like That would be obvious to spot. I'm, I'm really not great with my younger tree species. So I just kind of know what I'm looking for as far as sign and not necessarily what kind of tree I'm looking for.
1: I just have this picture in my head from New York where I hunted a lot of pine forest back there and uh, you have the needles on the ground. And so I don't find a lot of scrapes where they're actually, you know, scraping out those needles. It seems like it's more licking branch based. The thing that was always difficult to me, it's still hard for me to figure out. I almost have to find like trail intersections to get good at this. But those scrapes or those licking branches are hard to see because all it is, you know, if they get their antlers wrapped up in some of those pines where it's like dead branches on the bottom, they're just breaking them off. So all you see is like a patch of broken branches. Like if you look at, you know, 12 pines in a circle all of them will have those long dead like extending branches and then you'll get to one where the trails be and they'll just be broken off and you know they'll be like let's say a couple feet shorter than the rest I've overlooked those a lot but last year my brother started getting into hunting one of those quite a bit and he had quite a few good encounters up there and so it just opened my mind up a lot that there's a lot of talk out there about hub scrapes community scrapes and mocks and making these big beautiful giant scrapes but you're having success on scrapes that are going to take a lot more woodsmanship to be able to find. And I think that there's something to be said about that. You know, almost anything in the deer woods that's too good to be true in some way, shape or form could end up being too good to be true. And so if I look at my own strategy, finding some of those, I, th- I can think of one in Ohio that was on a hillside. There was a big hub in the bottom. This scrape was on a hillside and this scrape actually ended up getting more activity throughout the year than the one down low, and you would have never guessed. I ran into a problem, though, what I did wrong there, right and wrong. I mean, I almost killed a deer on it, but basically made a mock out of that scrape that was pre-existing, and it's a pretty high-pressured area. And the one thing I'm starting to find quite a bit, I'm not quite sure how to combat it yet, is the minute you make a big mock, like say you just work up the dirt, you know, you rake it out, you have this car hood size scrape. Well, now any person that walks through there is going to see that scrape.
2: That was one of my biggest things I wanted to convey to you today. Is this, uh, I listen to you, I listen to you, obviously, I listen to everybody. Mock scrapes absolutely work. There's guys that base their entire strategy off of it, and I'm not crapping on it. However, for me, the last thing I want to do most of the time is draw attention to a spot that I know that deer like to come out during daylight. Would it enhance that spot and make it better? Would it definitely, you know, get me more pictures? Yes. But then I feel like my chances of killing on that go down if somebody comes by there. Like just the other day. In a spot I killed early season, a guy come walking through there. And I never get early season guys walking through there. But that guy walked right through that spot. If I'd have had a mock right there, because they never look up at my cameras either. But if I'd have had a mock right there, he definitely would have looked around, saw the camera, saw the mock, and then started investigating more. And for me, the juice isn't worth the squeeze a lot of the times. I'm not saying I don't. If it's a really hidden, well overlooked spot, you know, that I don't believe that is going to get a lot of traffic. And I have to centralize that for a picture because the the movement is maybe not as defined and X'd. I will do that, but it's few and far between because I'm scouting for areas that there's already pretty good daytime deer movement. So
1: it is an absolute great point. And, you know, I'm going to get some flack for this on this episode, I'm sure. But the thing that I just want to make sure that everybody's understanding with this podcast is the goal of the podcast is to have different guests on with different tactics and approaches. And each one of them is an individual. They're going to have their own things that work and don't work for them. And the whole goal is to be open-minded enough to any situation, any guest that comes on here that is killing deer, that's successful, want to figure out how to take their strategy and mesh it a little bit. And you know some topics aren't going to be for everybody, but other topics could be a light bulb moment. And for me, This is a a light bulb moment. I'm a big mock scrape guy now. I am. I I get a ton of pictures of good bucks on them in daylight, but I also have had two or three of them in the last couple years where somebody finds it and puts a camera right on it. Last year, I had a 150 inch 10 point in an area. It was only a couple hundred yards off the road. Beautiful hub. I mean, it's, you look on a map, you're like, okay, that's gonna be a good spot. It leads right to an ag field. It's pretty obvious. It was already a scrape and it was hard to see, but I went in there, I made it, I mean, beautiful. Like I, this thing was just picture perfect. It was like a beach. It was 80 yards from the bed. The bed was elevated, but it was not elevated high enough to where he could see that beach. And there were some pine trees scattered that were short. So you had the perfect access in up that hill. I mean, it is a dynamite kill location. But what happened is I made that scrape about double the size that it was. And opening and week, we had an out-of-state guy in there. I drove by, saw the truck, saw out-of-state tags. He was from Pennsylvania. He went right in there and found that thing. And he actually put his camera, a cell cam, on the tree that I had a camera on. So now there's two cameras on the same tree. So I literally just drove down the road. Like He hunted it for a few days. He left. I drove in there and took my camera and took it out. Removed my camera from the situation. I was like, I'm not playing this game. But it was a bummer because that was a kill location on a really good deer. And if I wouldn't have done that, would he have still found it? Well, maybe. But I I definitely didn't help the situation. And I can look at uh, a lot of spots that I find where I make mocks and there's no hunter sign in there at all. And then the next year there's a stand set up right over top of that darn thing. And does it happen all the time? No. Can I still kill a deer on them? Absolutely. I think that I have a very good chance of doing that this year, for example, but in high pressure areas, there's always going to be give and take with anything that you do in the deer woods and in high pressure areas where there's a lot of people, it is definitely something that people can gravitate towards and see a lot easier. I mean, a lot of my mocks, you can be halfway up the ridge and look down. You're like, look at that car hood side scrape. One of my best buddies hunts here in Ohio. He puts in, you know, about the mileage I do, roughly 800 to 1,200 miles a year boots on the ground. We're just, we're all over each other's areas and respect the hell out of him. He's an absolutely great hunter. He sent me a picture last year of my camera and he's like, I just put a camera on this big scrape. And I turn around, your camera is looking at the big scrape. If somebody gets in that area, it's just something they can look down and see right away. So I just think that. It's important to play devil's advocate because I'm always talking about how great mocks are and I completely agree. They have their place. They definitely do. If you're on ground, that's not as pressured or even pressure ground. If you're in the right area, it is just such a dynamite thing because it does take that location and it just could make it just a little bit better. Or if you need to steer the deer, it could do that. But just be aware that in the background, it could draw more hunters into that spot. So I think that that is an absolutely great tip. You know, it's just something that is different than what most people are talking about.
2: Last year, I had a scrape that I, that I actually did do a mock scrape on. It was in a thicker area where I didn't think people were really going to be uh, walking through close to the road, up on a ridge, close to the road, close to the parking lot there was an exit movement, but there wasn't a good tree at the exit movement. So I was just using, I was utilizing one side of that movement. And so I wanted to get anything that was coming by there to come over there. I could check the camera without even walking across that one line of movement and then see if I wanted to press on any further and ended up, Killing because there wasn't anything on that one line, but since I had scouted the area and had a pretty good feeling about the fact that there was movement, I moved in and actually killed in the the second location.
1: Sorry to cut you off earlier. Let's get back into that story. I just thought that this was going to be an awesome talking point. So
2: I'm I'm actually surprised that you brought it up because I was like, oh well, you know, that's all they talk about, mock scrapes. I was like, for me, I wanted to make that point of like, you know, there there's a time and place for them. So uh, that's actually. Pretty cool that you were the one that brought it up.
1: I'll tell you what, man. I mean, my whole goal is to just be a student of the game. Every single person that I talk to, there's going to be something to take away from, and it's always good to have both sides of the story. You know, like it is a very important thing. So, so yeah, I any any chance that I can take to learn something from you, we're going to dive down that road as much as possible today.
2: I couldn't agree more. Like I, I always want to make sure too, and put the disclaimer. Anything I say, it, there's no such thing as always or never in deer hunting. So we are going off of what works a, a higher percentage of the time, right? Don't not put a mock scrape out just because I said, because it could be exactly what you need in your spot. As you go on in deer hunting, you learn To read each situation and not just try to generalize everything. So just trying to give some tips that could help guys and maybe not, maybe not ruin a couple spots just because like I have buddies that want to go out and put out five mock scrapes in an area with cameras. And I'm like, dude, somebody walks around there. There's a good chance. They're going to see one of those. And now you've got more heat on your area. So, but uh, as far as the buck, so one of my favorite things, it's not, I mean, you know, again, generalizations here, but one of my favorite things to look for is elevated CRPs or, Maybe guys call them clear cuts um, in different places, but elevated tall grass fields, tall grass at the bottom, mixture of ag and hills. Um, And usually that sets up pretty good for bedding either at the top or the bottom, depending on where the pressure is. So another thing I never like to do is generalize where I think that they're bedding because I always like to go into an area completely fresh, break it apart, and then break apart every single aspect of that area before making a decision. Because when you start just saying, okay, well, they should be bedded here, they should be bedded there. Deer don't always do what they're supposed to do. Then you start generalizing in your head and you're setting up wrong. So whenever I went in there, found that scrape, I kind of took note of it. I had actually killed some other deer in a different part of this field or whatever. I started running cams on it about four years ago. And the interesting part is I ran a cam there and then over in the corner where you see the buck come out of. So I had a camera on this side, camera on that side, because it's two different parts of movement that come down. I wanted to see because if deer are going to skirt that scrape too downwind of it, because it's on a ditch in between two bedding points that butt right up to that CRP. So I figured if you have lower thermals in the evening and they're coming off those bedding points, they're going to skirt that scrape at about 20 or 30 yards or maybe a little bit more on that other trail because the thermals are going to be sucking it back down and they can just scent check it as they're they're going out to private ag. There's private ag on both sides. But so anyway, over the four years you know, obviously I hunted it sparingly, but always had that first encounter on my mind. Like, man, it was, you know, last week in October, they were hitting this. And I was just getting a lot, like crazy amounts of daylight pictures. And the times I would hunt it, I would never see a deer. There's one buck that I was in there. He's an eight-year-old deer last year. This year, if he shows back up, he'll be a nine-year-old deer. Daylights all the time. He's not going to score high at all. He's probably in the 140s, but he's just this massive old bodied buck, weak G2s, nothing special about him. But this deer would make my whole hunting career if I ended up actually hooking up with him. Right. So this is the deer I was really in there after, even though there was a lot of other good bucks, but this deer was really, really consistent. And I could tell that after a few years, I realized that he was bedding off of these points and then watching people access and then holding tight and then wait until they leave. And oftentimes a half an hour after I would leave, he would come in and hit the scrape. So he was definitely sitting there close watching me access. So I was racking my brain on how to kill him. And I realized that the only way to do so is with like a weather pattern, something that was going to was gonna keep my noise down, something was going to keep my wind in my favor and uh, let me slip in there during daylight, get set up whenever he couldn't notice me. I also was waiting for the highest probability time of other bucks coming in and checking that scrape, which was the last couple of days in October. I always light up on that scrape because it's definitely around doe bedding and, and private ag and stuff like that. So I set out knowing that it was going to rain starting around 11 or 12, and I figured it was going to stop raining around four or five. And so I figured that right then and there, they're going to get up, freshen those scrapes as they're making their way you know, to other areas with does or out to the ag or whatever they were going to do. To my surprise, they were moving in the downpour, which kind of blew my mind. Like when it was raining, the hardest is when I saw the first big buck and he was up over by where I usually hunt 80 yards away. So he ended up, I don't think he was scent checking because I don't think you could smell anything in that rain, but he ended up just skirting a scrape 80 or 90 yards away on the other side and going out into the CRP. But it had me pretty jacked up that they were even moving in that. So about an hour later, about 4.58, I look over and I see the deer. I'm a little bit all over the place here, but I kind of wanted to touch on this too. So I had had a picture of this deer the year before at this scrape on October 31st at like 5.30, somewhere around the 5.30 mark and this deer shows up at 458 in the exact same spot a year later almost to the time frame too so usually october 31st because i have kids i'm out trick or treating and there's always a big deer that daylights and i always like missing by a day or something like that and i think the weather pattern is what helped to get this deer up and moving and going out and checking scrapes is, is just my gut feeling otherwise maybe he would have waited and come in another day but that weather pattern had him up and moving and uh, i ended up smoking him so
1: real quick with that historical data are you seeing that quite often where your dates are lining up like that?
2: Yeah, so I've killed two or three bucks off historical data. One thing to note that also wanted to get across was I find historical data to be much more consistent around these scrapes that are near dough bedding because food changes, pressure changes, but dough bedding doesn't change. And it's really, really hard to kick these bucks out of an area when they know doughs are about to come in heat. And those old bucks. So I always, I always like to make sure that that people think about it in the way of bucks spend their first year and a half with doe groups. They know doe groups almost better than they know bucks because they didn't spend a year and a half with a buck. They, they become more reclusive as they get older. So they really, really understand how the does bed, how they act, and the process of them coming into heat and all that stuff. So um, for me, historical data becomes even more important when it comes to specific bucks around specific doe bedding areas and scrapes like we talked about earlier, so.
1: I completely agree with that. I've had a lot of conversations with guys about historical data, and it seems to be, for the most part, there's a couple guys I still wanna talk to that run a ton of cameras and have a whole theory behind it that obviously works for them. But it seems to be that the generalities there are, if you have a consistent food source, historical data could be pretty good for you. If you don't have a consistent food source, Historical data is difficult to try to comprehend and wrap your head around unless it's around doe groups and that rut activity, which is what I see here in Ohio, you know, in the hills are even down in the ag, like our fields are shifting rotations almost every year. It, you know, worst case scenario every two years and the acorns are constantly changing. Like last year, we didn't have any reds. The last two years, we haven't had any reds. Three years ago, we had good whites. We really haven't had good whites. This year, the whites are still pretty bad. The burrs are pretty good and the reds are all over the place. Best red oak year I've ever seen hands down. So what that does, the historical data is, is like it's all over the place. It's just shifting around like crazy. But the one thing that I've seen consistency with in four years of running cameras in Ohio is the doe groups the bucks will move into those areas within a couple day period seems like every year like i can track a buck from the time he's two to when he's five frequenting the same scrapes down one of the same doe bedding area within a day or two year after year after year regardless of food source and so i think as we get later into october and maybe even that front part of november to me, that is when historical data is super important in any sort of hill country is going to be that time of year.
2: It's weird because the other thing and you hear other people talk about this and I don't like trying to, I try to not regurgitate just old information, but some things are foundations that need to be built on. There are bedding areas that get hot for a week or two time frame. At different times of the year for whatever reason and i do have like i have an early season bedding area that is hot every single year no matter what the crop rotation no matter what the acorn uh, thing i think it's very pressure related because i think that the rest of the area always gets pressured and those deer Have grown up knowing where the pressure is. So they just know where they can go and chill, especially as a buck gets older, he gets harder and harder to kick out of an area that has kept him safe. I start getting a lot more regular data on bucks. If I find an area where they're consistent, they're very consistent. It's not always that easy because a lot of times they will shift because of the food. If it's not crazy pressured in that area, they're going to go and pick the bedding that's best for the food. And this is a controversial thing that I've heard different people say different things on because. They spend so much time with does and then they move away, but they know where the does in that old area like to bed. And so I believe that when they they set out on their um, excursions in the August, like the August time frame to go out and you'll get that picture of that buck, uh, you know, a couple of times in there. I think they're going back and revisiting kind of their old stomping grounds and checking on does. And then about that sixth through the 12th or 13th time frame in November. I start pulling all day sits right there outside of doe bedding that's, you know, usually pretty deep doe bedding because I always find like as November progresses and those bucks have to travel, they start, they start having to expand their core area out to those other doe groups. And I always feel like that's where they're the most vulnerable because they don't know what it should smell like in there. They have, you know, they're not there all the time. They're not sure, you know, if anything has changed, they just know those doe groups are in there. And generally those older bucks know through years of being, you know, going through ruts and stuff like that, that the does generally aren't in there for till eight or nine o'clock. So I really, really, really like those 10 that 10 to two, 10 to three time frame in those dough bedding areas. It's just a grind. And you know, you've heard this before, you're not going to see a lot of deer, but you're going to see the right deer. Man, when when it's the middle of the day, sunny day, and all of a sudden a giant's coming through, just it's a real thing. So it it's not like you're going to see every deer in the woods in that bedding area, but you will, if you sit for a week in a good doe bedding area, you're going to see one midday.
1: I see the exact same thing here. David Riley kind of calls it like a field trip in August. Like the bucks are, you'll get them on camera in August for a couple day period. It seems like they'll move into an area and then they vacate again. And they're probably doing that in quite a few different areas. Like I'm sure that you could catch a buck on, you know, three, four different sections if you had cameras in different spots doing that same thing. But they're going in, they're assessing that ground, they're probably assessing the herd, and then they leave. And some of them come back early season. Like some of them come back and stage in those areas. Maybe they were looking for acorns, right? Uh, But some of them don't. But the ones that don't come back, from what I've seen here in Ohio, is they will come back at some point during the rut to check in on that spot, that place I was telling you about with the doe bedding. Well, the doe bedding is a clear cut, and that scrape is just downwind of that on the side of the hill. And those bucks, I will get those bucks on that scrape in August every single year. First week of November, I will get those bucks on that scrape again. The funny thing about that is it's almost always between 10 and 2. Like that spot, if I was ever going to hunt it again, I would just go in mid-morning and then hunt it the rest of the day probably because that 10 to 2 time frame in there on the downwind side of that doe bedding with these nomadic deer that haven't appeared all year, it is so consistent to me that it almost blows my mind. When you said it, I'm sitting here like, that is literally exactly what I'm seeing in some of these spots is these bucks will just come in. They know, hey, the does are going to bed down at eight I'm going to show up at 10, run the downwind side. They're there. They're not there. If they're there, well, I'm diving in that clear cut and I'm going to chase them around. And we've seen that. Or he just makes his pass and he's gone. I've seen it. This one specific setup is a scrape on the side of that ridge downwind. And then there's a little tiny micro saddle right on top of the ridge. And what they do is they come in low. They hit that ridge. They scent check the scrape. They're getting all that doe bedding wind. And if the doe's not there, they never even pop out into the opening. They just skip right up over the saddle. And then they're on to the next one. So they're just like, he has a route that he takes that just, you know, it's perfect.
2: That's exactly what happened with my public land redemption buck. Um, there's a figure eight that some of these bucks will make. Go in, come back around the doe, and then come back and loop back through. But also, he, he came down this ditch over a saddle and straight down in and... It's funny how when you watch mature bucks work compared to the younger bucks, because those younger bucks are the ones going in there and making that figure eight a lot of the times. That mature buck knew that he could come down through that ditch and figure out what was in here and then make that turn and figure out what was in here. They're trying to exert the least amount of energy possible and trying to stay like he's not comfortable in the daylight. He hates that he has to be out there in the daylight. The big buck I killed last year. You can just tell how uncomfortable these deer are to be standing there in the wide open in the daylight. Like it is not what they want to be doing whatsoever. They are forced to be doing this by nature. So they take the route of least resistance and the quickest, and that's why they don't go until 10 to
1: two is because something better be in there when they're in there. Cause they're getting right back to cover. So it was the year of the grind when I posted the, the grind video. And I was in there chasing that buck around. My buddy actually killed one morning in that system. We drug a deer out. We walked past that scrape and went up over top the ridge. And sure enough, that buck came out and hit that scrape at like maybe 4 or 4.30 in the afternoon. And I'm thinking, you got to be kidding me. So I went in to hunt him two days later on an afternoon hunt. And I showed up at, I believe it was like one fifteen, And he had hit that scrape at 12.56. And I was like, man, I just can't, I could not catch up to that deer because I wouldn't let my, this is so funny how we evolve, man. Like if I look back even three to five years ago at the generalities that would dictate the way that I hunted on a daily basis compared to where I'm at now, it was hitting me in the face. It was like over and over and over, this deer is telling me hunt midday. And I'm just like, I'm not hunting midday. I'm going to show up at one or two o'clock every day and I'm going to hunt or I'm going to hunt until 10. And I missed out on killing that deer and I killed the deer 25 inches smaller that year because I wouldn't just go hunt midday. But now I look back on it and I'm like, guess what I'll do now? I'll hunt midday every day during the rut because I've been told that over the years and like finally I'm open-minded enough as a hunter. It's becoming a, a good hunter. Is like being willing to, in my opinion, it's like you have to accept an open minded strategy. As soon as you decide that you got it all figured out, you're not going to have the same amount of success as a guy that's like, you know what? I'm just going to roll with the punches. I might hunt midday. I might hunt the morning. I have no idea. I might make a mock. I might not make a mock. There's no telling where I'm going to end up on the day.
2: Amen, man. man. You cannot go out with a predetermined thing in your mind. Like that just doesn't work. If you want to kill a big buck, you got to kill him on his terms, not on your
1: terms. That's exactly it. And it's a hard thing to accept. We want to be able to dictate every move that that deer is going to make. And in my opinion, you kind of got to let him dictate everything. You just got to be in the right spot.
2: You changing your perception of deer and deer behavior is what kills deer. It's kind of like when I was talking about sales. Like back when I was a farmer, I used to think, oh, I'm not one of those slick haired car salesman guys that wears nice clothes and goes out and swift talking guys. Well, I changed my perception of who I thought I could be and then went on to make more money. Well, it's like the same thing with deer. You have this preconceived notion of what you think deer have to be or what you want them to be. And if you change that in your brain, it immediately opens up opportunity. You just have to rewire it, man. To where you look at a deer for what he is and not for what you want him to be. It's just really interesting. Same thing. I used to look at public like, oh, the reason I'm not seeing bucks is because they're so pressured. They're pushed out of the areas onto this nice private. That's not the case. I sucked at hunting and that's why I wasn't seeing deer. So once you start realizing like, oh, it's my thermals, it's my wind, it's my access, it's... Time of year, it's you know food and this and that. Change your perception, and you will kill bucks. But until you can admit that you're wrong, you're not gonna you're not gonna see an increase in in your deer kills. So,
1: so you mentioned being able to dissect rub lines at certain points of the year as well. Do you want to dive into that?
2: When I'm out there, one of the biggest things that I'm looking for is historical rubs of a certain size and in certain locations. Um, You know, we've heard people talk about that before, but I think it's important to backtrack them and figuring out one of my early season kills. I had an X of rub lines that led to a buck bedding area. And I actually killed him out of that buck bedding area, checking to see if that rub line was open and then going back in there when I knew that there was uh, buck activity coming out of that bed and killing him. But you can also run into a rub line that is maybe it's there's buck bedding, but those bucks are only bedding in there when, when it's towards the late end of October and you're starting to get that rut movement and they're, they're moving in. Well, then what you'll see is an X of movement of trails, not necessarily the X of movement onto bedding. So if there's really a key thing when you're looking for them is identifying, does this X of rub line meet up at a trail or does it meet up at a bed? And then identify, so is there a rub line coming out of a bed near doe bedding? That's probably not always, again, going to be a good late October area. And there's other factors that go into that. But if you have that X of movement there of historical rub lines and they are just meeting up and crossing each other, not necessarily a bedding spot. It's probably a dynamite rut location or end of October location where you can catch a buck cruising or going back to bed near doe bedding. As opposed to if you have the buck bed and he's got rub lines xing at him, you know, that's that's oftentimes going to be a good indicator of an early season bed. Not always, but that's something that I kind of try and look for when I'm looking at rub lines.
1: So you're basically saying that if you have like a like a like a V almost that meets at a bed and you have, you know, the two trails that split. You can follow those back to a bed or even a betting area. You're going to be saying that that's going to be more of an early season because that buck's getting out of there and then making sign as he just disperses wherever he's going.
2: Yeah, he's going, he's going to acorns. He's going over here to ag. He's got multiple routes that he's leaving. And oftentimes, like I said, they become a lot more consistent around doe bedding areas, right? They make a lot of the same loops. Not always. Again, this is just a gross generalization. However, when I'm looking at rub lines, I'm really trying to figure out. So the one that I killed before the booner last year on a first time sit, I put cameras way, like I killed him up by the road on a, a hill, right? Where two rub lines met. But then they're way over here. There was white oaks that I put cameras in and I knew in my mind because where I found the beds and how that X had happened and how there was doe beds too, that there was a good chance this was late October bedding as they were coming into heat. So what my plan was early season, since those oaks were going to have, you know, good crops, I was going to go up in there and slowly still hunt my way in and check those cameras as I'm going along the ridge, not caring if I bumped, um, deer, if I didn't have anything on those cameras coming out to those oaks out of that bedding, then it confirmed what i said was right or what i thought was right about that being a buck bed for doe bedding later into october and so then i snuck up in there right at the end of october checked that first camera didn't have a lot of good stuff on it moved in and guess what there was sign right there at that crossing and ended up smoking him with some does where he was headed back to bed with those does you just really want to not write off every rub line leading to a bedding area as the same
1: i'm going to have to pay attention to that a lot this year if i find an early season rub a lot of times I feel like I'm in the game pretty good, but I can get a lot better at that as well with kind of looking at that. And ideally, in my head, the way that I see this going for myself is in my scouting that I'm doing, finding these X's like you're talking about, determining then if they're leading to betting or if they're just that pre, post or rut type X. And if I can determine that, hey, this is, you know, an early season one, well, then all you have to do is pop in here and check this to see if it's fired up early season when these whites are hot, these reds are hot. And if it's hot, well, you you already probably know how to hunt the bed because you've done your scouting. Early
2: season, it's really easy. If a rub is opened up into a bed you've already scouted and you predetermine that it's probably an early season bed, that's why you're in there checking it. And now it's opened up, you can easily go in there and kill. But if you get it, your lines cross thinking you're going to go in early season and kill over this X of movement that is only there late October as the does are starting
1: to come into heat. Well, now you're going to be SOL. So let's try to make this time relevant right now, because I think that that's a great tip for uh, like the scouting phase. So if I wanted to go out and make this valuable to me right now, what do I need to do? Uh, I've, I've got a lot of SD cams to check. I've got a lot of food sources to verify if they're hot or not. And then I'm going to get into, you know, scouting my way into hunt in some of these areas. So what should my thought process be to try to utilize that and mesh that with my system?
2: Well, so like right now, I am done with really scouting for early season betting because to me, now it's there's possible shift happening already. Probably not quite until the velvet comes off, but some of them are shifting a little bit. And for me, I'm not necessarily going into what I believe is early season buck betting right now, but I may go into a whole new area. That's another part of my strategy of cameras is is like right now, as we're getting towards closer to what I call like cutoff of when you just don't go in at all is so I'm going to go and go maybe explore a whole new area and shotgun that area. Um, And in that area, I'm going to be looking for, maybe I do find an early season bed. I'm not saying never, but I'm really trying to just go into new areas, blow them out and figure them out. And if I find that X of movement, I'm keeping that in the back of my head because those deer, you can't pressure them right now, now most of the time. So that was information that I picked up last year and then used the same year to kill a deer. Whereas if you go in right now and blow a deer out of his bed, not to say he won't come back, but he now knows the way that you're coming in. And that's another key factor. When I'm going in to hang a camera, I'm going in the way that everybody else goes in because I want him to exit the way that he always does. But if I am going to go hunt it, most of the time I'm going to come around the back way and try to get up in there where he's not expecting people, where it's at my advantage. So that's another key tip is when you're accessing it, access it the way
1: that you think 90% of the guys are. I absolutely do that. The only time I start changing that is if I'm checking cameras in season, I'll a lot of times access those, very typical of the way that I would hunt, just so I'm staying out of a lot of these, the way that people access into these spots, the deer can actually see them or smell them from his bed. So I'll make that move to go check that cam. A lot of times I'm doing that like with my bow in my hand too. I'm ready to rock and roll and I'm just like, you know, I'll get way downwind of a system, start coming up through a drainage, for example, or the side of a ridge and just like, keep checking my staged cameras. To see if one of them's getting, like if they're getting hotter, is he, you know, is he here a half hour after dark? He's here right at dark. He's here a half hour in shooting light, you know, all stage like that.
2: So if you go in now, like right now with the mentality that you're going to find an early season deer, there's a good chance that you're going to screw it up a little bit. So for me, I do my early season stuff back in, you know, the end of July, early August. And that way, before the shift happens, I just know I didn't screw too much
1: up. Let's run through your trail camera strategy real quick, because you're obviously locating some world-class bucks out there. And so I just want to take a deep dive into what that process looks like. So let's run through all thing trail cameras, as far as, you know, when you're setting them up, how you're monitoring them throughout summer. And then this time of year and what type of data you're collecting and how you're utilizing that data come season.
2: Last year was my first year using cell cams. I was kind of on the fence about it. You know, I like I had this air about me like, oh, I don't need this, this, uh, you know, this new technology. But again, I changed my perception. Maybe I'm just being a certain kind of way about things. I need to try them. I tried them out. Guess what? I don't believe that they are the smoking bullet most of the time. Like I thought they were like the key to success, like the easy way out or anything, because if anything, I prefer my SD card data because. I don't have to worry about it until I'm analyzing it, as opposed to trying to constantly analyze it every single day. So for me, like my biggest fear came true was I'm going to be at home or at work. And like I'm already ate up with deer hunting. I don't need 15 reminders a day that I should be in the woods and uh, not present in what I'm doing. But anyway, that's a whole different tangent. So. I started with four last year. I went up to about eight or nine. And what I like to do is split them up half into new locations, half into into locations where I know are good and I'm moderner, monitoring either for particular deer or pressure or to make sure that, you know, there's still the same movement that's going on in there that I had originally, you know, had in years past because things can change in the whitetail world. And again, you need to be open-minded that your good spot is not a good spot anymore because you don't want to get stuck in that mindset of I have to hunt this spot this time of year or else... You're going to be you know, in trouble if it changes. So, but so I split it up between old and new. I like to get into the new spots first if I can, but I also like to put my cell cams out first because if I have any issues, like I just had to go yesterday and pull a cell cam because for whatever reason, the batteries ran out, it wasn't transmitting. I want to know that in enough time to get in there before I feel like it's detrimental to my hunting. So because the whole idea of a cell cam is to put it in an area that's kind of of sensitive to, uh, you know, your pressure. So I like to get my cell cams out whether that's old or new spots. You know, I'll try and get inventory on a new spot, generally either like a hub scrape, um like we talked about. Like I really like those for inventory. I personally am not great at hunting them like a lot of you guys like you and Gary. I'm trying to get better at that. That's something that I'm trying to trying to work on but like I'll use those for inventory a lot of the times but then I will hunt the areas around it and try and hunt down the bedding areas and stuff like that. But a lot of guys use way less cameras in an area than I do too. So I will blast an area with cameras. Again, there's no such thing as always or never, but there's a couple of different kind of strategies. So either you locate a buck bedding area and then you have trails coming out of there and where those meet up with other trails, I'll put a camera and then maybe where that meets up with another trail, I'll put a camera. I can check that one camera without getting into the kill spot go in, hunt close, and then maybe check that one when I leave. And it's not always that cut and dry, but that's one strategy. And then another strategy would be to have one over, like we talked about earlier, a scrape or something like that, monitoring movement coming out of bedding and stuff like that. And I probably wouldn't check that one until I hunted it either, or I would put a cell cam on that. If I knew there was bucks in the area that I'm really trying to locate, just like that 10 pointer that I didn't, that I killed the big one last year. I'm really, I put a cell cam on that particular scrape because him and a couple of other deer, I really, really want to know if they're alive. And if they're alive and they're hitting that in daylight, then why wouldn't I go in there and hunt it? So there are times where I'll hunt right where that camera is. And other times I just want to pick up, is a deer entering or accessing it through, you know, like through this fence crossing, because even if it's dark photos, we can, we can uh, kind of backtrack to where they're coming from and uh, give me an idea there too. But one of the biggest things is I like to do is walk my perimeters of my public, or I create like a perimeter in my mind or on my map of the section that I'm going to check out. And then I'm walking the perimeter of that looking for sign going in and out because generally it's around a bedding area or an Oak flat or something like that. And I really want to look at sign going in and out of there. And a lot of the times I will place multiple cameras on different trails coming in and out of there, because even though I'd like to think that I, I have it figured out again, we often don't necessarily like people will say, well, you know, I'm, I understand deer movement, so I don't need to put that many cameras out just in certain locations. It's like, yeah, but every once in a while you're surprised. So I don't ever want to miss out on that one little chunk of information. So I like to make sure, especially in a new area, I will shotgun cameras out everywhere And then it shrinks down to this one little area that I focus on. I can think back to one deer, a 10 pointer that I killed, oh, two years ago now, where this giant new piece of public, I went out to all these key locations and then it came down to this one little hillside off to the side. And every single time that I've hunted in there, I've had a big buck encounter year after year. And it's like, it took me shotgunning all of those cameras out to figure that out. It doesn't mean I can't go in and scout an area and understand it and hunt it. I used to do that before I had cameras. It just is something that I check myself on like, okay, even though the signs here, is there a lot of pressure? Is this happening when I think it's happening? The deer that I killed last year before, like three days before the Booner, I went in there and like me and you were talking about before this, I scanned this whole area. And then the last hill, like we were saying, it always seems like it's that last spot that you don't want to go up into. And then you go up in there and it's money. You're like, holy crap. Thank God I went up in here. I literally looked at my buddy and said, I'm going to kill first sit on this spot. I guarantee it. Cause it just, it made so much sense. Right. But I still ran a camera in there because just
1: because I feel that way doesn't mean that it can't be wrong. There's a ton to be said about that, man. And I go back and forth. I'm kind of all over the map now. Like that's one thing that I'm proud of this year with my cameras. You know, I, in the past, I've casted as ultra wide net and that was the way I did it. And then I also went down the... Uh, road of like you know dumping a bunch of cameras in one specific system but that's all I did it was one or the other and so this year I'm all over the map I mean I'm running cameras in a ton of different areas but I also have sections that I'm running a lot of cameras internally in there and one example I know of a really good deer this year. They're doing a bunch of work in that system. So, a little bit nervous on there's a bunch of human intrusion in there right now and I'm not quite sure what it's going to do to that deer yet. So what I did is I've got I pretty much have this deer dialed. I mean, I know a ton about this deer. Like I've learned so much about this deer, but Throw all that out the window because now there's a bunch of intrusion in there and they're doing a bunch of work in there and there's development. There's all sorts of things going on. So I have to make a, I have to have a new game plan. He's not going to be where I want to kill him or where I thought I was going to kill him. So once again, now I have to go figure him out and I have to learn from him. So I took a bunch of cameras and basically broadcasted them in and around any ridge system within like a mile or two of this system. So I casted with like internally in this system. Now I have a, a wide net within this. And the whole goal there is to just try to keep picking them up. Like where's he at? Where's he coming out of? I have some some generalities, right? Like there's some clear cuts that dump down into some hubs. So each one of those hubs down through that line, I just have an SD camera sitting down in that bottom. And same thing on the other side of the ridge or across the road. Like I just have this net casted within a two mile circumference of this deer to just pick them up as many times as possible, so I can you know formulate a plan and make the move I need to make. And all I really care about is. Same thing with cell cams for me. With me, like I run quite a few cell cams now. I'm not running cell cams necessarily in kill locations very often because we just physically cannot do it. We don't have signal down low. But what it is for me is just tell me that deer exists. If I can put a cell cam out instead of an SD cam and it costs me two less trips into that area just to know he is alive, I don't care if I get any intel beyond the fact that, hey, this deer exists. That saves two days that I can probably spend with with my son and go do something fun in the summertime. And then I'm like, all right, well, I know that deer is in that system. I don't have to even go in there and pull those SD cams. So now I know where he's at. I already have all the scouting and the woodsmanship, and I know where the trails are at and the beds are at and the food sources are at. So once I know that deer is alive, it's just like a glassing sighting to me or like driving down the road and he crosses in front of your truck. It's like, all right, I know you're in there. I already scouted this area, so game on. I'll figure you out. All I want to know is that you exist. Once I know that, I don't want the cell cam to... I'm not gonna say ever, but in general I don't want the cell cam to kill the deer for me or like to put me really close. I just want to know he exists and then I want to go fight my fight. Because I know that when I finally catch up with him, if I still had to like, you know, figure him out, it just makes me feel really good. I'm like, all right, you you still got it, man. You're not you're not washed up yet.
2: That brings me to a point that I wanted to make is so when I'm building portfolios on spots and deer and stuff like that, I have deer that I really want to kill, right? But you also have to recognize when they're killable and not waste an entire season going after them. I might, even though I really want to kill that 10 pointer, I may only throw one to three sits at him this year because the time frames when I really actually think he's killable with weather and when he's actually on the public and different stuff like that is really, really important to note so that you're not feeling as though you're just because when you start going out and you throw Cody Jenkins, my buddy, I think he just did his podcast. He calls him bullshit sits. You realize afterwards that you did a bullshit sit and you're like, dude, that was a whole wasted time or I could have been over here chasing this other deer. And so I try and structure my season, like, okay, I have these bucks that I'm going to chase, you know, at this time of year and try and stack a bunch of different deer in my favor. uh, Like, so as I'm going on and I get a different wind, I can go chase this deer this time of year and whatnot. So I think that's key. When you hear people talking about chasing a particular buck, I think you'll, you'll see a lot of guys throw a whole season at a particular buck. That deer might not be on your property when you're hunting them. You know what I mean? Like you need to know, you need to have some kind of inclination That you're in the game.
1: That's a great point. And that's something I'm still trying to figure out, right? Because you can sometimes hound dogging them and like, you know, that bulldog mentality gets the deer killed, but sometimes it's the thing that leads to your demise and you never kill them because of that. So it's still a very situational thing. You know what I mean? Like I can think about this deer, for example, the one that I'm super pumped up about. And the reason is like, I keep doing this to myself, but anytime I get into that 170 plus inch deer there's not a lot of those out there, at least for me. So, like, if I find one or two a year and then I just like, I'm like, I gotta try to kill that deer. Like, it just, that's the ultimate chase for me. So, I'm gonna figure out how to stay after them. And so, like, what I end up doing, if I had more deer of the same class to chase that were the same age structure and everything. I would play that game a lot more that you're playing because I really like that game where you're like, all right, I got, there's these conditions, like the stars align for this buck on this day, based on all the data that I have, I'm going to wait, but I'm going to go hunt this deer in the meantime. I like that a lot. The, the approach that I take a lot of times, if I only have like one target is I will spend a lot of time, maybe not even hunting, but sometimes I am hunting And it is almost kind of like a bullshit sit. Like I will say, okay, he's, I think he's here, but I don't have the right conditions today to go hunt there. So I'm going to go back on this clear cut on the backside and just throw an observation sit and just see like, maybe he's over here and I'm wrong. And that sit I was going to throw is in the wrong spot. So I'm almost like making a loop around that deer, around his core area, just trying to make sure that I'm not wrong before I make that strike on the right conditions. So I'm taking poor condition days a lot of times to just like verify he's not somewhere else and that I'm actually right. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? It
2: it absolutely does. And uh, to your point about not having a lot of deer that are into that caliber, I can't agree more. People think that because you're in a destination state like Ohio, Illinois, Iowa, That they're under every rock and tree. And that's simply not the case. Like, I run 30 to 40 cameras a year, and I maybe get one of those. If I get two of those, that would be a crazy year. Some years I don't get any. It's not something where I'm getting to jump around Booner to Booner. I wish it was that way. But I also, like you said, it can be our demise. So I try to detach myself from the deer as much as I can, even though you need that bulldog in you when you're pulling those all day sits. Like, I altered my time off this year for a deer that was in the 160s last year, and I just picked him up and I think he's going to be booner status. But I altered my time off, specifically off historical data around one of those doe groups in November 11th. And so I'm going to sit every day bulldogging that deer out for a week straight. I'm going to try to catch him in that that same spot right there. But I'm not going to spend my entire season after that deer when I don't even think he's going to be in there. So I have to have some kind of other information telling me, like you said, an observation set or something to go off of. Otherwise, I'm just going to have to get real comfortable with the idea of a 140 or 150 that I have history with. And And to me, I really, really like it doesn't matter to me if it's a 140 or, I mean, yes, it does. We all want to kill the booner. That was an amazing experience last year. If I kill this nine-year-old 10 pointer though, to me, it's going to mean more to me than the booner. I don't know. I just find different storylines and stuff that really I kind of fall in love with, with the deer because I'm just such a, you know, I've been doing this since I was a kid and they still continue to amaze me. So I just love hopping around and figuring new areas out or, or seeing that deer and stuff like that. So that's kind of what gets
1: me going. It is for me too, man. And like the thing you just brought up there is like, you have to build that storyline. I'm the exact same way. I don't kill the deer to kill a deer. Like I don't I don't go out and kill a buck to kill the buck. Like, to be honest with you, I could almost care less about that part of it. To me, it's like I, I build these stories up and it's it's like a it's like a real life movie almost man. Like I build this thing up in my head where I'm like, I find this buck and he's just huge. And I have to learn everything about him and I have to train my mind, my body, my gear. Like I go through this entire process all year. And I'm just building this storyline. I'm like, it's all in my head. Nobody else cares, right? (laughs) Right. But I only care about what's in my head. Like this matters to me, but it just like, Building that storyline just it it gets me going, man. It's like it's like sitting down and watching a good movie almost. You know what I mean? Like it's nobody else's battle but your own internal battle. It's almost like a David versus Goliath type thing for me. The
2: underdog, man. Yeah, I'm an eternal underdog. It's funny. It's a gut check. Uh, Not to cut you off, but the we place so much importance on it, right? We will, you know, like just do everything it takes to get these deer. Go to work the next day after killing a booner, and nobody even care even a little bit not even a little bit. They're like, what does that even mean? And you come home and you tell your kid and all they want to do is show you their drawing. There is not one person in this entire world that gives a shit if you kill a deer. And like you said about the kill, like you look at your mounts and stuff. And for me, it's almost like this weird feeling of like, I don't even care. I only enjoy the experience and I only enjoy the fight. This feeling like I almost enjoy not killing a deer at night and getting this feeling like I'm going to get them tomorrow. And like that walk back to the truck reinvigorates me, right? So it's such a weird game that we play because when you kill them, you almost feel bad and you like you eat them and stuff like that. You utilize them, but it's like this weird empty feeling of like, all right, what next? So yeah,
1: I, I totally relate, man. It's such a such a cool topic, man, because we get very caught up in, especially nowadays with social media, like everybody gets caught up in. I got to post a buck. I got to post a buck. But the real ones, like the people that I gravitate towards, couldn't care less. They they could not care less. Like I know guys, they're absolute killers. They don't even post their deer. They don't care. It doesn't matter to them at all. And I feel the exact same way. Like last year, I got a lot of flack, man. I mean, I I people send me screenshots of Facebook posts where they're like, "Why are you guys listening to Jake? He he didn't even see a a buck in the woods last year." And you know, I'm just like, "I had a hell of a chase, man. I I had the time of my life." And talk about storyline, I chased this buck down, this huge old, last year he was eight, this year he's nine years old, this eight-year-old buck down, had him at 15 yards with no antlers the last day of season after hunting, after it's literally living in the tree for three days. Like I would get down midday in February and take a nap in the sun so I wouldn't freeze while I was sleeping. Because I was living on this ridge system with this deer, because if I left, he would hear me come back to the tree. And nobody cared. And nobody no, but you know what, man? But I cared so much. Like I know, I know. I'm just saying, it's just so funny how
2: much how much importance that we put on this game. Yeah. And And like
1: you're like, look, like check it out, man. And they're like, Yeah, cool. It is an internal battle. And that is exactly it. And that's such an important thing that I, I just think that doing it for the right reasons.
2: You have to accept that you're doing it because you love it and that it doesn't matter to anybody but you, it's going to be a sad thing. Even when it's over, you're like not doing it for the end result. You're literally doing it because you love the work. And until you fall in love with the work, I can't stress it enough. People want to kill big deer and don't realize that all that is missing is the work. Me and you don't have anything innately great about us as far as deer hunting. We literally go out there and we put importance of the work uh, above all else. And guess what? We get results. It's just like anything else in life. It's like, if you wanted to get really, big and in shape, you would have to really, really focus and put importance on getting big. It's the same thing with deer
1: hunting. Nobody is just special and a great deer hunter. They just are willing to work harder than you are. Hey, we've been, uh, we've been on this for about an hour. So before we skip off, I want to just cover your, uh, your new business endeavor that you have going on. You sent me some products and I think they're, really cool products. So I just want to make sure that people know about what you got going on over there because, you know, from really public or private, but from being like a a public land hunter, it's a great product, man. It's kind of designed around what we do with trail cameras. So if you don't mind just, you know, taking a dive down that road for me, just get that information out there.
2: Yeah. So, uh, last year while I was hanging cams with my buddy, Greg from work, he had never stepped foot in the whitetail world or in, like in the woods whatsoever. And so I thought, all right, you want to go deer hunting. You're going to go scouting with me and uh, ran him through the ringer. Never saw Greg back ever again. But that day I had a light bulb moment of how long it was taking me to hang cameras because he was sitting there pissed off, uh, that we were still there. And I'm asking him to tell me, is the camera straight? help, you know, like trying to find a stick. It's not staying put. And to me, I'm such a gear oriented person when it comes to hunting, like making sure my system works together and everything is flowing and making sure that, you know, everything is tight, quick, easy, and efficient. And I'm like, this is just the most inefficient process that there is. And I started doing the math. I'm losing on an average day, an hour and a half to two hours of hanging the camera. I have limited time with the kids and, you know, I get very limited time off. I probably only get seven days in a season to hang the cameras. Also on the trail cam strategy before I go into that, I just wanted to say is when I do it is, a, is an important time frame. I try to squeeze it all into August because on your SD cams, especially in the heat, you're going to get a lot of false triggers uh, if you have it in open areas and you don't want to be depleting your alkaline batteries when you really need that data into October and November. So I try and squeeze it into August as much as I possibly can. Sometimes it starts a little early and runs over into September a little bit, but I really, really, really try to focus on getting that done. So the point is I have to squeeze a lot into a little. And so I can't have any wasted time. So I went back, went to the drawing board and came up with what is uh, now called the one and done elevated trail cam system. It's basically a three part process. You have an elevated mount, which is universal. You can zip tie it to pretty much any camera on the market, Um, just zip ties right to the rails that are already on there. And the reason why when I came up with it, the things that I was thinking that really, really had to, it had to be was, it had to be quick, right? Obviously. But then also it had to be cheap enough to make sense for, I'm only buying $20 cameras. So it can't be a $20 mount or a $30 mount. So it had to, it had to make sense uh, money-wise. And then also I wanted it to be able to where it would keep it close to the tree, whereas all your other mounts actually keep your profile out away from the tree. And so the the whole point of it is to hide it from people as well as deer. And so I needed it to be really tight to that tree. And then uh, on top of it, one of the added benefits that I got from creating the system was as you twist the knob on the the mount, it tightens up the paracord and keeps it really tight because it gives it three points of contact. And so then you get raccoons or squirrels coming down on it. They're not going to throw it off like they can on some of your screw-in mounts that go into the the bottom port there. Not that you're always going to have that. Sometimes they can be tight, but they will loosen up over time. I've had it to where a raccoon will get on and shift that a little bit. Um, And then, you know, you've kind of wasted a uh, resource. So once you've get that where you want it it's also got a bubble level on it so if you get onto like a weird angled tree where it's going off to the side and you're trying to get it straight up and down it's really nice to be able to line that bubble level up and make sure that you're still level because with your sensors, when you're elevating them too, you, you get that sensor wonky and then you're getting late triggers. So to me, getting it good and level when you're angling it down was a really important feature too. The second part, and probably my favorite part is the laser pointer. Um, You can attach it to the camera or you can do like my buddy, Gary Gunrow, who you had on here. And he's the guy that hooked me and you up. Shout out to Gary. He came up with the system of putting it around his neck and I've kind of adopted both. I'll keep one in my pack that I will throw on to the camera sometimes depending on if it's like a weird weird tree but most of the time i'm wearing it around my neck throwing the laser on putting it on the lens and then seeing exactly where i'm pointing the third part would be the paracord quick attach mount with the clip and a prusik knot so you just basically throw it in the clip pull it tight twist your knob, put your laser
1: on there, get it set, twist it a little bit more and you leave. I got a few of those mounts and I've used them and they're great. Like I'm enjoying these things like crazy because they do take the efficiency of being out there way up. Like I'm much more efficient hanging a camera. So I'm out of mounts, right? I need to buy some more of these things because I like them. But so yesterday I go back to the old breaking a stick. So I get this scrape set up, you know, it's a perfect spot. It's on a flat on a ridge. The deer bedded out in Greenbrier in front of a strip mine pond. Like these, the cool thing about Ohio, if you get in the strip mine land, there's like ponds halfway up the ridge system and it's just like diversity man there's there's a lot of there's water for them to drink there's a ton of growth around it there's a bunch of forbs around that water and it also creates like really good funnels where if they want to get to the acorns on top they have to come around the ponds to get up in there so i put one right on a it's like a triple pinch like they're forced up top because the red oaks are up top they have to go around the pond they have to get up the cliff right there in that one section had a lot of good deer on that camera before so this year i was like okay i'm going to elevate it i just want to get it up higher that way they're not looking at it don't get weird, but I get everything set up and now I'm walking around, walking around looking for a stick to use and trying to find the right size stick. And I break one and it's punky and I break another and I climb up the tree and I put it behind the camera, not enough angle. So I have to go down and find a bigger stick. And it's this whole, I spent 10 minutes looking for a stick to use to elevate my camera. And I bet you there's more people out there that do that, that don't even recognize that they're wasting time than not. And I was that guy for a long time where now with these mounts, I'm like, okay, I get up there, I can turn that little adjustment screw and get it leveled where I want it. And I can have that thing tight, not having a big strap. harder for people to see so that's another added benefit for sure and then one of my favorite things is just that laser the laser like it's such a genius thought we all use you know the new hip things to use your cell phone on wide angle put it up there but you're still trying to get it at the same angle as the lens a lot of times that laser you just set directly on the lens and then it points directly where you need it to go and you're like okay yeah it's the laser is literally shining right in the scrape right now i know that i'm good to go So it sounds really simple, but nobody's ever done it before. So I think that coming out with just some, you know, ingenious products like that is really cool, man. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's going to be a game changer for a lot of people. I can see myself adopting that strategy and you know what, maybe instead of buying five new cams next year, I buy like 20 of those mounts to run on my cameras. That's kind of my thought process is just keep stacking them up over and over and over. So
2: my buddy, Gary, he bought, he runs 90 cameras and he bought them for all 90 of his cameras. The two things I wanted to cover too, though, is the on the mount, you can never get a stick that's going to get as much pitch. So I can go up a lot closer. So what happens is with the stick, you go out farther away from where you want to aim it. Then the deer can then see your infrareds. Like I know they're not supposed to be able to see them, but I've had deer pick out my my cameras before so in a really sensitive location close to bedding I like to be closer to the spot I'm hitting go up and angle it straight down that way when they're walking under it they don't have that chance of being in the line of sight and then the other thing is with the laser pointer it's designed around a really cheap pet laser pointer and I like to make that a point is when I was designing it, it it's like, all right, do I go with the more expensive laser that would, you know, you could like plug in and recharge and maybe have a little bit brighter uh, laser or something like that? Uh, Or do I go with something that is, you know, very cost effective? You can buy a couple of them, keep it in your pack. One of them runs out. You just throw a new one in there. And if you lose it in the woods, you're not out 40 or 50 bucks every single time. So uh, a couple of tips for any guys that have bought them or that wanna want to buy them, you're gonna run into sunny spots where it might not work that great. And there's two um, fixes for that. One, you can put your pack down there and aim it right at the spot that you wanna hit and it will bounce off of your pack. The other thing a guy just told me the other day that he really likes to do is, he will attach it to his camera turn it on and then go down there and stand there and let it hit him. And that way, when you're by yourself, you know, you don't have a buddy telling you where it's pointed. You can look right there, get back up and make your adjustment. And the other 80, 90% of the time, you're going to be able to see it. But in those certain situations, high grass, uh, you know, middle of the day when it's really bright and sunny, you're not going to be able to see that laser, but there are other ways around it. Yeah. Yeah. That's
1: a, that's a great point. Well, Hey, Brian, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show, man. Where can everybody find out more about you and more about your business? Yeah, so uh, it's uh Good Sit Mobile
2: on YouTube is where I keep all my hunts and some of the gear how-tos and then also www.goodsitmobile.com you can find all my products. There's the the trail cam system but then there's also some bow hanger stuff, some GoPro mounts and all that other stuff. So really appreciate you having me on, brother.
1: Yeah, you have Instagram too as well as Good Sit Mobile.
2: Yeah, it's a uh, good sit mobile Instagram. And then uh, my personal page is uh, at Mr. Rogers too. And I, I kind of update both of them with products and stuff like
1: that. Sounds good, man. Hey, thank you once again for coming on the show today. Hey, brother. Thanks for having me. All right, everybody. That's a wrap for today's show. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed today's show, please head over to iTunes, leave a five-star rating and a written review. See you next time.